Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdy and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia, and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is a recording of a live interview I did with writer and philanthropist Amanata Conte-Bige about her memoir, Rising Heart, on 27th of August for the State Library of New South Wales. I think you'll agree once you've listened that Amanata's story is an extraordinary one of courage and grace, and I'm so happy to be able to share it with you. I thank the State Library of New South Wales for making that possible. Hello everyone, and welcome to your library at home. My name is Sam Hagen, and I'm part of the library's public programming team. I'd like to begin tonight by acknowledging that we meet on country. I live and work on Gadigal land, and I'd like to take this opportunity to pay my respects to elders past, present, and especially emerging. And I also extend that respect to any Aboriginal Australians who may be joining us today. So welcome to the latest in the library series of online author talks. We're getting quite used to seeing you all here. Uh, hopefully you are visiting the library website regularly to keep an eye on what's coming up in our events and exhibitions. I can tell you that our World Press Photo exhibition is now open on site with social distancing. So if you would like to go into the library and see World Press Photo, now's your chance. Tonight, we've got a really special treat. In a minute, I'm going to introduce Nicole Abadi, who will be in conversation with Amanata Conte-Bige about Amanata's new book, Rising Heart. I happen to know that this is a really special night for these two fantastic women who are both really proud and should be proud of this great new publication. So as usual, I'll see you again at the end to moderate the Q&A, but now I'm going to introduce Nicole. Nicole Abadie is a book critic, festival moderator, podcaster and literary consultant. She currently writes about books and other things for The Good Weekend uh, and she has a new podcast series and it's called Books, Books, Books and it's available on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify. I'd like to welcome Nicole to your library at home. Hi, Nicole. Hello, Sam. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for that lovely introduction. So it's my very great pleasure to welcome here tonight Aminata Conte-Bige. I am delighted to be here at the State Library with Aminata, virtually, to interview her. Aminata is a writer, activist and philanthropist, and tonight we're going to be talking about her extraordinary memoir, Rising Heart, published this week by Pan Macmillan. Aminata is my dear friend, and it's a great privilege to be here speaking to her tonight. Aminata, welcome. Thank you very much, Nicola. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Before we begin, I too would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we would normally be meeting, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Before we start our conversation, I'd like to introduce you to Amanata. Amanata was born in Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone, in 1980. From 1991 to 2002, Sierra Leone was wracked by a civil war which claimed over 50,000 lives. Amanata was a victim of that war. In 2000, she arrived in Australia as a refugee, the first female refugee from Sierra Leone to, ar to arrive and to settle here in Australia. She was 20. She has made a wonderful life for herself here. We're going to hear a little bit about that. And in 2014, she founded the Amanata Maternal Foundation, a not-for-profit organisation to raise funds for mothers and their babies in Sierra Leone, which has one of the highest infant mortality rates in the world. So we're going to start by talking a little bit about your childhood. Your parents divorced when you were three and your mother moved away. So you were really raised by your father, Pa Conte. 
You call him in your book your ultimate role model. What was he like? Well, my father, um, Paconte, which is, uh, his name was Yaya, um, in real life, he was a true, true living hero. Um, I think the reason why I, I really use that word because of the values that he left in all of his children and also the people that he walked, um, was around. But my father was a, a very um, disciplined person. Uh, education was extremely important to him, but also it was the way that he nurtured and loved his children and people that um, he, he met in the street or businesses, how he treated uh, people. So those are values that I've also, that he has instilled in me that I'm passing on to my children. But he was loving and caring, but most of all, he was the most giving human being I've ever met. Um, and uh, the way he gives, it was not um, it was not ordinary for 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 we for us children to see. We were just amazed that I actually thought my father's job was giving, helping people. So I always admired that because I saw the respect and the joy, and he gives without not wanting for any kind of recognition for what he does. So it was, it's more the discipline, the, the, the legacy that he has left us, um, which is all the children when we sit today, that's all we talked about. It's very, yeah, very important to us, all, all of us. Yeah. Aminata, something that comes through very clearly in the book, and it's certainly obvious to me who knows you, that kindness was something that was very important. And that was that was something he taught you was really the most important thing, wasn't it? That you should always be kind to other people. Yes, kindness, um, treating people with respect, especially your elders. So I find it hard when I came to Australia to call people by their first name. It was incredibly hard because we were not allowed to. Um, kindness, but also giving. Um, that we should we should be. If, what was the point of having so much? if you could not give it away. So um, those, those uh, 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 again, those values were, were on the top of the list and then education. So for me, I have lived by that every single part of my life. Every time I meet new people or meet people in the street, I can't differentiate how I meet a beggar in the street and somebody who is in a bank or wearing suits. So I have been, I've hold that really in, in very closely and I've, I've, I've always said that most of the beautiful things that appears in my life are people that I don't know out of, out of nowhere that will really show up always for me so it is working. <laughs> and Aminata he was a very protective father wasn't he? He was a, especially very protective of you you say. Would you like yes. to tell us a little bit about that? I, I think the reason why that is so important and um, it's because most of the time, especially coming from Sierra Leone, so I would speak of Sierra Leone, that the men, the fathers um, really put the, the, the sons on a pedestal. Like the, the daughters were not meant to go to school or finish school because they're going to get married. So for my dad, he really reversed that. His daughters were the most precious. Like none of us knew who were his favorite. Where nine, he has nine children. But the, he really changed that um, way of the way we think of boys and girls. So we were, it was it was very wonderful to to experience, but then see others' parents do completely different. So he wanted us to have education because he believed with us having education, we will be able to live by ourselves and and also provide, not depending on a man. I mean, it's having that. So which is something that we are all, especially all the girls now, um, six girls, all of us are fully independent and we see that in the differently to the boys. And um, so that was something, that was a gift, pure gift. Aminata, I know that you had a very happy childhood. Civil war broke out in Sierra Leone in 1991. Um, for some years it didn't really affect you. But in January 1999, when you were 18, the rebels captured Freetown and they occupied the city for three weeks. And during that time, I understand your father took in hundreds of people to your family home. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? 
that was um, also a representative of who he was. Um, we woke up this day when the rebels had attacked the capital city, and that was a time when you would probably keep your children safely. But I remember my father saying, we have to open the gate so people will come in. And I think what really has struck me with this story is because our house was massive. It was big. It was the biggest house in the area. All the other houses were being burnt. And this big house was the one place you should actually not go to hide at all because it, it, it can be seen by the rebel. It's just standing there and it's bright and yellow. But yet everybody that was running away, we didn't know them, wanted to come to our house to hide. And, and also the, the most the beauty that I see in that, it took over three weeks in the most intense time of the war that the rebels did not knock at this door. Mm. Only at one time at the end when they were pushing the rebels that they, they had to, one of them just took notice of the outside. All of a sudden they saw this house and then they asked everybody to come in, out. And if we were not coming out, they were going to burn the house. So that's when everyone had to get out and stand in this small field. How and many of you were there, Amy? How many were sheltering the house at that time? We, when I speak to my sister and my brother, we we're still in shock because we, didn't, because we didn't know how much people we actually had. We know it was full and people were sleeping on the floor. Um, it was dead quiet because you are living in the middle of a place where all the houses are being burned. You smell in body being roasted you seen outside but because our house have a tinted window like a bulletproof so the rebels could not see us from the inside we could see from the outside so when when that time came for everybody to come out because they were literally going to burn the house they have petrol we were in shock how many people have been hiding in there it was almost like you opened a small bottle and a, a, a water flowing but keep flowing. And I think the rebels themselves were really shocked. And as we, as we, we jump uh, through the other fence, the backyard, and then end up again at the small, there was a small park. It was a small empty field just next to our house. And I still cannot believe over a thousand of people were just there. I don't know where they came from, but they've been living at our house for weeks. And you were standing there holding onto your father's hand. And a man who you now know as Daremy saw you and said, you come here. Could you tell us what happened then? So when he, when Daremy looked at me, I knew. And the reason why I knew he was going to, it was this look as like a pose, instant position, like all of a sudden. So when I, when I locked eyes with him and, and I saw him walking through by the time he said, you come here, I let go of my dad's hand. But at that time, he had already captured four other girls who were waiting on the side. And so when I let go of my dad's hand, his hand was shaking because he had Parkinson. So I was holding, the reason why I was holding onto his hand is to stop it from shaking. So when I let go, um, and the reason why I had to let go is because we knew incident that have happened that, um, most of the time they were asked, they would rape the girls in front of the parent or ask the parent to do the same or shot the, shot the, 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 the dad. Or, so those stories were there in my head. And I knew letting go and walking towards him, I knew I, I had my body just react to that. It was a, a time when I felt this is a time that I can protect my father mm. without think, without knowing it. But my mm. body knew it and I had to just move towards the NIG. And uh, I never looked at my, I never saw my dad's face because I was afraid of looking at his face. I knew how this man had protected us. We, 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 we never left the house. We were driven to school and brought back to school. I never go to the market even. So everything, he was very careful about everything. Uh, our surrounding, and all of a sudden, dad has been dad has been taken away from him, and he knew, of course, what was going to happen to me. So, just departing from him and not turning back and look, 
um, that, that I, I still don't know how I did that, but that was and, myself protecting. And Aminata, you also knew what you were walking into, didn't you? Because there'd been such fear amongst the young women of Sierra Leone that you knew that the rebels were coming looking for young women. You said, especially for women who were virgins, to take them away. And so a lot of you had tried to look older or you'd smeared coal on your face or you dressed as men. So you knew what the consequences were as you left your father and walked towards Daramie. Yes, there, there is something that happens when, if you, if you, even when you know um, the, the, the effect of being, if you have seen stories and when it happens in that time, because the stories that we have heard, we know they're real. Um, but when it happens to you that moment and knowing that that was, that was a huge possibility and you did, I didn't have time because I was so was such a small girl, so I didn't have time to really um, dress up. Or my sister dressed up very old. She put some ashes, so a lot of people put some um, charcoal or ashes on their face, and that was to make their faces look darker because yeah. they were more interested in women with lighter skin. Like you said, and also they will make the hair really rough and look so they look more acting like a crazy somebody who is not well up there and look unattractive. So I didn't have the time to do that. So but I knew also that when they come, I knew in a way that I was going to be taken because they look for younger girls, very young, between nine. It doesn't matter whether you're nine years old, you're 10 years old, we just take them away because they wanted to um, be the person that vaginates the, the girl. Aminati. After you were kidnapped, they held you in captivity for some months. I don't want, and I'm sure no one else wants, to hear the graphic details of what happened to you, but could you give us some idea of, of what happened during those months? Uh, those months were very hectic time because and the chaos was, the cloud was, the, the, the firing and the smell and the cars and the bodies you seen in, in that moment, because it was so intense, it was full of chaos, you full of screaming, and as you move from every place, you see incidents happening in Sierra Leone. One of the um, the uh, the most uh, thin, the most theme of the war was to cut people's hands and asking if you have if you want a short sleeve or long sleeve. That means the length of where they were gonna. Cut off, so you 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 you're passing through those scenes. So if you said you wanted a short sleeve, they'd cut off your arm. If you said you wanted a long sleeve, they'd yes. cut off your hand. Yeah, yeah. So when you're in civilian, you still see that people walking around with limbs. We, every time we go, we see that. So that was very known. But you're walking in between every scene. You see somebody lying, being raped. You see somebody being shot next to you. So almost what happened is you, the person that kidnapped you you're almost closer to him. It's like they are protecting you because mm. if some other rebels saw you, they might take you. But because I was in the group of Darami, so I cannot be taken. So you're, you're, you're coming close mm. to the person that have kidnapped you. Mm. Um, in your head, they're protecting you at the same time because mm. the moment you go to another, this, another rebel saw you by individual, they probably shot you or take you away. So that, that became, for those couple of um, days, and then as we keep going to the bush where we have to change all our clothes and as to be camouflaged to green or dark, you, they don't want to see you wear white or any bright colors because then you're bringing signal to the government that after flying the helicopter, they will just shot you. So we have to change very quickly to what we were wearing in something darker. But every, every day, every night was a, a different scenario and sleeping next to a dead body or, um, or going for days, um, days or week without any meal and looting. We have to go to people's house who have run away and see if there's any food. So it become more like that for those couple of months. And Amanata, as well as the sexual abuse, they used you and the other women as human shields, didn't they? Yeah, so we, we, the main reason why they choose civilians or girls, girls was to be used as sex, sexual slaves. So the moment they caught you, you are the wife. So you, you become the wife. But also when the government and the rebels are fighting, they put the civilians at the front and then they give you guns. So then the government 
doesn't know mm. this because the rebels do not have uniform. They wear normal clothes. So you have to, so they put, so there's a lot of casualty, but most of the time the, the government knew that was the setting, especially during this time. But um, young, especially young boys who have been brainwashed and, and, and drugs and who probably most of them have seen their parents being killed in front of them or they have killed their parents because that's one way that they try to really brainwash the boys or the young uh, um, uh, rebels, which were very dangerous than the, the older rebels, the leaders. You make the point in your book, Aminata, you've just referred to the drugs that particularly with the young child soldiers, that they fueled them up with cocaine so that it was almost like they could, to drive them into a, into a real frenzy so that they almost lost their humanity. That's, that's how you describe it, isn't it? Yes, they lost. You, you can, when you look into a, a child soldier's eyes, you, you see not all the innocence is completely wiped away. You do not want to provoke them. You don't even want to talk to them because mm. they can just shoot just like that for fun and laughing. So you, can, you know already what has been, like what has been done to them. And they also use the gunpowder, the cartridge, they, they take that as drugs also. Oh. So there's so many things that have been wrong with that have gone wrong with these boys that we all rather see a group of um, adult soldiers mm. and rebels and go to their camp than these boys because they don't know how to probably rape a woman and leave you. They would just use knife and, and slaughter you. So it was they it's it, it it was really horrifying to to see that in a, in a child that you know you can just hold together and cannot move, but you can't do that. And you can see how much they've been destroyed their mind and, and the pain also, what they've gone through with their family. Mm. So, yeah. Aminata, eventually after some months you were released, you were part of a group with some other children uh, who were released in exchange for food and supplies for, uh, from the government forces that were provided to the rebels. You were eventually reunited with your father at your family home. What was that like? Uh, that, that I think in my story, I believe in my story that has been a painful, a painful memory for me because um, even though I, I was released and I was uh, looking forward to come home and I, I don't even know what to do with that scene, mean coming home and uh, knowing that my dad was alive. I knew my dad was alive because we listened to the radio when we were kidnapped. We listened to BBC News. And I knew my grandfather has been brutally killed. So I knew for some reason that my father was alive. So I remember coming home, we have all the neighbors um, really um, excited because they, they were only really 17 children. So I was part of that and I was not a child. So I remember my stepfather who was in the army went and got me and we got home and um, my neighbors were standing outside rejoicing, but really just standing still. And I remember just walking home to the gate, climb the stairs, and um, and my dad was sitting on his beautiful this beautiful leather chair that I always remember of him, and um, I did not recognize him. He was shaking, and he has been really tutored, very small. He was a chubby man. His joy has just disappeared. He, he he felt so blessed that two of his children has been has been given back to him. So when I saw him and I and I and I my dad, he's not he's a very vulnerable man. He cries. That's something we knew of him. Um he's, he could not he wasn't able to express the, the joy. Um uh, but he knew that his daughter, um, something has been taken away from his daughter and he felt like he failed. He felt, I think that really destroyed my dad, that he failed to protect, meaning that he rather would have died mm. than to see me being taken. He, would, he should have fought and been killed to know that he fought to stop. I think mm. he really preferred that. Like, I, I, that he was killed to protect his daughter, but... He he didn't he wasn't able to do that. Aminata, 
you, you then went to Guinea yes. to spend some time with your mother who was living there and you found something out there that caused you great concern and that made you realise that it wasn't possible for you to go back to Sierra Leone and to stay there. What was that? What did you learn? When I got back to um, Guinea, I... Um, I was very isolated. I wanted not to be known in the community because there was a lot of refugees and um, because of the way I was released on television. So I stayed quietly. And I remember my sister's fiance at the time has let, let us know that Darami has gone back looking for me because the reason... At your, and that was at your dad's home in Sierra Leone. So twice he had turned up because his position... And that's that's what happened because when they capture you, when they get that position, they own they they feel like they own you. So between my release, he didn't know I was released. So he the incident that had happened in the book, he has gone away, and I've been released just that minute. So, and I didn't understand his obsession until when my friends who I was kidnapped with when I when I met them in Guinea and said he was sick, totally sick when I got released without him not knowing. Um, he, they said he almost loses his mind. So I, I really understood the depth of obsession mm. when he had to come back to my house and mm. start looking for me. And the UN thought that my life was at risk. Um, mm. They had to really try to get me out of the country or any part of Africa really quickly. And that, that was when you realised, wasn't it, that you couldn't, you couldn't stay in Sierra Leone, that probably you couldn't stay anywhere in Africa? No, he could because he came. He continued to look for me until 2011. So in 2000, you'd applied to the United Nations Refugee Program, and they arranged for you, you and your sister, to come here to Australia. Did you choose Australia, or did somebody suggest it to you? And, and what did you know about Australia at that time? Um, uh, I know any nothing of Australia. I was very familiar with Europe and the United States. So when the, the, uh, the conversation came in with UNHCR, the American program was ready, Canada and UK. Um, and then they said, Australia. And I said, where is that country? And because I was living in Guinea Conakry, so when they say Australia, I got the accent of Australia. They pronounce it Australia. So then I thought, okay, Austria. Because <laughs> my mom has been in Austria before. So then I go, okay, I'll go to Austria. And they were very concerned as to why. And then I told, I remember telling the, the head of UNHCR, I said, well, I don't want people to know my story. I don't want my community to know I was that girl on television. I wanted to come to a new place where I can start fresh. And also I didn't want... Um, I wanted people to help me without knowing who my story was, what, what my story was, and I didn't want that pity. I wanted to start fresh. I wanted to get everything done on my own. And they were really surprised because they thought being with my community would have helped, but I knew that would not have helped because I wanted to really stay away from my story for a while and get back to my education and going back to school. And but there was an independency that have come into me, my being that I didn't understand because I was brought up by my father doing everything for me. But all of a sudden, I wanted to live on my own. So um, coming to Australia, this is how I end up here. <laughs> and I, I only, um, I, one thing I knew was um, the Olympics was on a start. And I was like, okay, I don't know what the Olympics is, but I was happy to experience it. Yeah. I want to take you back a moment, something that we, we didn't, mentioned you talked a few times about being on tv um, at the time when you were released in exchange for food and supplies all of that was televised wasn't it so yeah. throughout Sierra Leone yes it was tel televised because when I got released I was given a letter to give to the government and the rebel said that had to be read on the news mm. not my friends that I've left behind will be killed so I have been released, but then I have this burden to carry. So he had to be read on the news. So my father and friends find out that it was actually me on television, on the, the national television. That's when they, they, they saw that, or that oh, she's really here. That's when a lot of family knew who was released. And that's what gave you a particular profile that made it probably easier in a way for Darami to find out about yes. what had happened to you. Yes. So for that reason, you were selected to come to Australia as part of the UN Refugee Program. You were the first 
woman from Sierra Leone came here with your sister and you arrived in 2000, which was the year of the Olympics, when you were 20. How did you feel about leaving Sierra Leone and your family behind? When I said goodbye to my family, and even when I, when I saw my dad in Guinea, I saw my dad for the second time, he was coming to London for treatment. He had cancer, he had had cancer also. I, I didn't think I was ever going back. I, I, not because I don't want to go back, but it was almost like coming, leaving was the end of it. So I didn't know if I was going to come back. That moment, it was, and I really believe that's what most refugees or migrants go through when they resettle in a country. You're thinking of that moment. So I, I didn't, there was no feeling of missing anything. I, I knew something inside me had changed. I don't know what it was, but it was not me going back or going any other place. I was just focused on the present and that is coming to a place and getting my life sorted. So you came with your sister and you were actually 20, but they wound your age back to 16 so that you could go to school and, and try, to, try to find a place in Australia. What was life like for you here in Australia, Amanata, in those first few years? When, when I arrived, of course, I knew I was safe. That was something that I felt straight away, even though not having understanding where I am at. I knew I was safe and I was just... I just went into this mode of just going into life as, as it continues. So I didn't have more to think about. But I think even coming, when I, when I arrived in Australia a week after, and I had traveled, but then I have been, I have, been, I have not been told about having jet lag, like not sleeping. So when I experienced not sleeping, because it was the first time to travel that long, it was three days, went through France and Singapore. So because I was not sleeping, I had so much memory coming back. Then I actually thought my life is not real. Like me being here, I've been, I'm in this country. But then it became a time when I thought have I made a mistake to come to a country. There's no one here, even though I came with my sister, but we've both gone through different experiences. She got a job, didn't she? She she got a job in a nursing home. Yeah, she got a job. She went to school straight away because our dad has really instilled that kind of independence, you know. So she got on with life right away. And for me, I was juggling. I have to go to school. I have to pay my bill. And I have to, with this amount of money that I was getting to Centrelink, but I was I was just going through it as, as time goes. But it was extremely difficult. And I, I cried every day. And my dad talking to my dad in London, he was very worried um, that he knew I was alone and I was struggling, but I have to hide that struggling from him also. But it was, it was extremely um, difficult. I didn't have words for it, but I think the most challenging thing was I've been told I was traumatized, but I don't know what traumatized means. That was a new word for me. What does that mean if I'm traumatized? So then I have to say counseling okay, I'm sitting with a counselling that is listening to me. Me have to tell my story. I didn't know what that meant. And then the counsellor, we said, I understand what you've gone through. Then I'm thinking to myself, how can you understand what, you, what I've gone through? You've never been in a war. So there was all this um, emotion that I was going through that I don't know how to, where to put it. But then life keeps going on. So I have to continue to move on and repeat. So you finished school took you a little while to find work. You, you did some modelling work and then you got a job, your big breakthrough uh, with David Lawrence, the wonderful clothing shop, sadly not in existence anymore, but you got a job at the David Lawrence shop at the airport and you loved that because you'd always loved fashion and clothes. And then in February 20, 2007, you met a Frenchman called Antoine. Could you tell us about how you met? So I met Antoine at the um, Sydney Opera House at the um, at the bar. I love going out by myself. I think when I came to Australia, I had to adjust to that life going out by myself. So I've been to Bondi, and that day it was a beautiful sunny day by myself. And I, I got the train, and as I drove to Circular Key, I just got like in the train. I just oh let me come out. It's still beautiful. So I remember spending the whole day evening there, uh, and as I was walking through. A jazz music was playing, and um, I, st- I stood up at the terrace watching down the opera bar, and I just um, 
this person with this most beautiful smile <laughs> just came up to me and said, oh, hi. And I just turned, and he has this, he has this smile that his eyes lit up. Um, he saw me, he was with his friend, and his friend was waiting for him. And, and we start talking, and he went back and tell his friend to go, and we spent three hours speaking. He did not speak any English, but I understood French because my mom is from Guinea Conakry. And we became really good friends and we saw it, we dated and then he went back to France a couple of months after. And when he went back to France, he left something behind, did he? But it wasn't something that you found for a few years. What did he leave behind? So when we, we lived together for a couple of weeks, he had lived to a time because he doesn't speak English. He took a time to write a letter about how he felt. So for me, I was just, I just liked him and I had a good time. I'm having a good time with him. So he left this letter professing how he felt and he counts how many days he has met me and he hid this letter, but I did not find this letter four and a half years back when we reconnected and it was, and where he put it, I just don't go and look into that very much. So that was incredibly shocking to me. And what I understood was when he got to France, he called me all the time. I didn't understand why he was calling me in that mm. form. So he was waiting for my expression. Mm. But of course, I got not in the letter. <laughs> I don't want to spoil the story, but we'll yeah. jump ahead and say in 2011, he returns to Sydney and you are together again. Yes. I want to take you now to 2009 when you meet a woman who has become very, very important in your life. By this time, you were doing some work for the UN High Commissioner of Refugees, the Australian branch, and you, in 2009, were invited to give a speech at Parliament House at their Mother's Day event. And that was the first time that you had really shared your story and talked about publicly about what had happened to you. And you met a woman who has become very important to you, who was very interested to hear about your story. Who was that? Rose Horrens. So I met Rose. I, I spoke, uh, told, my, told my story for the first time. And at those times too, I will not use the word rape. Rape was the word that I never used. So when I spoke, I didn't know what I said. And Rose and her daughter were in tears. A lot of people were in tears. And for me, it was very different. Why would I say my speak, tell my story and people were in tears? And Ross came up to me and, and told me, um, said that he would want to hear more of my story. And I've never really expanded my story beyond what I, when, when I said I was kidnapped. I would just say I was kidnapped and uh, let people ha- use their own imagination. So um, since then... Rose and I, of course, um, became really close friends. I spent the, my first Christmas with her right away. Uh, it was a beautiful experience so, to go through the Jewish land, about the Jewish holiday. And, um, uh, but she's such a person that is in your space. So we connected right away and told me she would like to hear a few women refugee stories. Um, and really, that's how we, we start working on the book and health. So, Rose, um is a theatre and was a very well-known, and still is, very well-known theatre director. She started to work with you and three other African women refugees who'd also been victims of sexual violence to create a piece of theatre. She brought a counsellor in to work with you and together you worked and eventually over a long period, you worked together for almost five years, I think, on that play which became the Borkham Hills African Ladies Troupe. In that, you all played yourselves, telling your own stories, but the tragic stories were interspersed with music and with song because you wanted this to be something very beautiful. The play opened at Riverside Theatre in Parramatta in May 2013. I am going to jump ahead and say by that stage, you and Antoine were married and you were pregnant with your second child you got up on stage and you, for the very first time, told your story in all of its detail. How did that feel, Amy? Uh, It was really um, uh, an experience that I think none of us, the four women, were were expecting. And Ross did such a brilliant job because we we go in telling the story thinking that we just, it was just a workshop and then we start telling it. Um, I think what was so incredible about those times and every time we shared those stories, for me, 
it's other people coming to me and said that happened and thank you. And, 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 and I knew the importance of me, what I get from that, I knew the importance of me telling my story, but mostly the truth of my story that when I share my story, I'm also sharing somebody else's story. And I'm also putting people in a journey as to thinking where they were when things like that was happening. Because as we live as human, things are happening all around the world. But where are you at that time? And also we, we, we learn that through storytelling, there's healing that happens also. Um, uh, the documentary has gone in, into many countries and um, the Bo Camille's documentary and is helping. So, yeah, Ros made a documentary about the making of the play. So the theatre, yes. I'll let people read about that in the book, or some yeah. people I'm sure will have heard about the Borkham Hills African Ladies Troupe. Um, but you went on, it went to London, and Ros made a documentary about that which was shown. You said something very strong in your book, that for the first time in telling your story on stage like that and playing yourself, for the first time you were not ashamed and you felt as if finally you had been released from your captivity. I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that feeling? Yes. I, um, again, that feeling, it's what made me choose to come to Australia because even though I was in a country that was safe, but I felt like a chain all over my body all the time because when people look at you, you think, you wonder if they know what has been taken away from you. And you carry that shame and you, you, you carry a guilt too. For me, beautiful was the word I was almost, I was scared of. I didn't want that, that when people compliment me, beautiful. And that was the thing that everybody said to me when they met me. But the, the moment I, I stood on that stage and said outly that I was raped, I was, my first intimacy experience was by six or seven men and all those things something a chain the chain cracked open i knew that the shame and the guilt was something that has, that was holding me back so i felt this liberation that happened that was really suppressing my joy but also i was in prison by these people these the people that uh, darami and many of these men that have done that to me they were still holding me as prison and i didn't want to give that power again to them because how can you be in a beautiful loving country and and you have all these things around you but inside you are in prison i knew i had forgiven but i knew i had the shame was holding me back so me saying those words that i was raped knew it did not take my dignity away and i knew that they didn't break me because they didn't make me so that was that became very clear to me you know that I can use my voice in telling my story on behalf of other women. So that, that was, um, and Rose was with us in those journeys. She would cry, she would get angry. I think that was the most beautiful part with Rose. She would get angry with us together. She would cry the emotions to come out and she would see her struggle. She really walked with us. She really showed up with us when she would tell us, if this is too much, let's stop it. We knew we, we were not, bound to do it. We can stop it anytime. So that was a pure freedom also to experience. She created a very safe space, didn't she, by bringing in a trauma counsellor. And so it was not just her who was giving you that comfort and support, oh. but, but an experienced counsellors that worked with you. Yes, absolutely. That was provided for us. But I think what was so important with our relationship with Rose is that at the end of the day, those counselors leave, but she checked on every single person. She, she was available even for, this was new for her. She was hearing things that didn't even come into the documentary. So we, we had that relationship with her, but we knew also it was too much for her at, at, a, at, at a point also, because there's so much people can absorb for you. And, and, and when they love you and when they carry, they carry the pain with you and the frustration. Um, so that was beautiful to have that, not somebody just doing a career, but somebody that was there knowing that these stories are important, the human story, not just to be told and, and get it over with. So, yeah. So, Amanada, not only did you participate in that theatre, partly as a way of 
helping yourself, but also to help other women that have gone through similar experiences. In the meantime, and I am skipping ahead, you built a wonderful, happy family life for yourself with your beautiful Antoine, your first child, Sarafina, and your second child, Matisse. And over that period, it was becoming more and more clear to you that you wanted to do something. You wanted to be of service. You'd been back to Sierra Leone. You'd seen what things were like there. You wanted to help the people and the women of Sierra Leone. And then it's from that that the idea for the Aminata Maternal Foundation was born. I want to go back, first of all, and ask you about the birth of Sarafina and what that was like for you. The birth of Serafina was um, extremely, it was, it was, a, it started, of course, a lot of women that would go through childbirth as a joyful, because you're looking forward to see that beautiful, precious baby to hold them. The moment has come where it became so, uh, it changed its cause and it became really a traumatizing experience where we thought she was, I was going to lose my life. She was going to lose her life. And I could sense the doctors in the room. I had seven doctors in the room that was monitoring us. And as Sarafina was pulled, she was pulled by a doctor uh, that didn't even have time to wear gloves. She, so she injured her right, uh, her right hand. And Sarafina, her shoulder was injured shoulder, as she was yeah, born. Yes. And so she injured her right hand, but she was the most perfect baby to me. And that experience, um, I, I, I heard a lot. There was a case study happening. They were talking about maternal health. And coming from Africa, we don't have words for these things, you know. So I, after when I get when I got home with her, I wanted to know why. I had seven doctors in the room to make sure that I survive. And I start seeing these horrifying videos of mothers and babies. And also at the process, I learned that Sierra Leone have one of the most highest infant and uh, maternal mortality. And I did not, in my brain and in my spirit, I did not understand why a mother or woman should die or their child you because of poverty. And for, for myself, I think I knew something really light up in me that I can do something. I didn't know what, and but I knew that I want to do something. And for eight years, that has been my journey. And yes. <laughs> what, what did you do? Tell us about, tell so us I a little bit about the foundation. Well, that wait, you just, first of all, the first thing that I wanted to do was to learn to understand why a mother and a child or why I would have died, she would have died if I was in Sierra Leone but not in Australia. So I learned maternal uh, infant mortality death is preventable. So we did a lot of research as to why. But then when we, we started setting it up, so it took me three years to just go through that process and set up the foundation. And I, I would partner with a hospital that, that, is a, that does everything completely free with the second busiest maternal hospital in Sierra Leone. And that was a maternal hospital that had already been set up yeah. by a, yeah. another Scottish organisation. Yes. But your foundation partnered with that organisation and yes. funds that you raised yes. were then went to... To, uh, to that maternal hospital. The maternal hospital. So I wanted to do that. I didn't want to go and reinvent the wheel. So I found somebody who is doing a brilliant job, but also doing it for free because I knew the problem was people did not, women do not have money to go to the hospital to have a baby. So I wanted a hospital that will provide a high quality but also cost free. And so I, it took me a long time to research and find this this woman, Anna Globe, she is just the most incredible human being in this world and does phenomenal job. She works in Sierra Leone, Malawi, Madagascar, and I only in Kenya. So I only work with her, we partner with her only in Sierra Leone. And the reason what I, I did that for is to expand the work that she has started to do it together uh, with the Aminata Maternal Foundation. So, um, so in Sierra Leone, one in 17 women died through childbirth. And in um, Australia, it's one to 8,700. And that, for me, it's just not right. And when I look at um, how these things are preventable, so that, 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 that just doesn't sit well with, with me. So we have, we found 15% of the hospital. So as people start, read the book, they will see the, the vision that is there. And I am coming to make sure that comes to light. I also encourage any, I encourage all of you who are watching and listening to um, to read Amanata's wonderful book 
a part of the proceeds of the book are going towards her foundation, the Amanata Maternal Foundation. And I urge all of you also who are not already supporters to have a look at that website and the amazing work that the foundation does. Amanata, you say a few times in your book that by telling your story first on stage and now in your book, you've done something that most African women would never do. Why not? Um, I think because I understand, I know the shame they've gone, they are going through. And I know for me, I, I believe my dad really created a, plat- a space for us and gave us that liberty. I have a family that is incredibly supportive. And I, I know that by me telling a story, I'm telling other women's story. I remember yesterday, um, my friend who I was kidnapped with called me and he and she said to me, I, I can never bring myself to do what you're doing. And I, I can't, I'm not saying thank you because I know what you are doing is giving yourself so much. Because when I hear you tell that story, it brings back a little memory. So when I spoke to her yesterday, I, I can see what that is doing to her. Even she has a beautiful life, but she's still tied up with this with this shame that she could not express it even if it's to one person and for so for me me telling that story and her seeing my story it's sort of a little bit of freedom for Mm. her that she feels like that is that is a mirror to what she has gone through so when I when I do that I know it's heavy I know it's hard on my body but I also feel like I I have been place in 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 a in a in a space where I know I have a lot of love people around me that cares for me and love me but also that cannot be enough I need I, I know I have to put myself or else the, the women of Sierra Leone have gone through so much so much like when I think of things that I've seen and we are in places like Australia and people don't know about this story, one of the most vicious, vicious what happened. So if that's what I had to go through to tell the story of my people, that is something that I'm willing to do. And, and I'm glad that it is getting that, that, that um, people want to hear it in, in places like Australia and hopefully around the world. But I know in life, one person has to go through for others to benefit. And I hope that is my prayer. I hope that is what I'm doing and we'll bring a lot of healing. So, yeah. Amanada, on behalf of all of us listening, thank you for your courage. Thank you for your beautiful book. I, I hope that it's widely read. I'm sure it would, will be. I know that you've had quite a lot of um, media coverage already and I just wish you all the very, very best and I, I just applaud your bravery and your courage. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.